0: Greetings, Earthlings. I'm happy and pleased to present to you a good friend of ours, a solid member of the Yard community for the last few years, tennis coach extraordinaire, world traveler, curious mind, San Diego native, currently residing in Orange County, the one and only Mark Lucero.
1: (laughs) What's up?
0: Thanks for carving out time today in your in your schedule between driving and coaching and and being a new father to have a conversation with us today.
1: Thank you, man. I always love to talk to people who are willing to explore everything, sports, life, all that stuff.
0: If I may, I've made uh, I want to share some observations uh of our interactions over the last few years and what's drawn me to get into this conversation today and share it with everybody is you're always in investigation and curious of how you can upgrade your own capacity to coach and how you can get the most out of your athletes. Uh, when you were coming through a few years ago and one of your athletes was going through a long rehabilitative process, it, it occurred to me that you were invested and involved and exposing yourself to, to the whole process, which any great coach, could choose to do uh to support their athlete and in the time that that's gone on since then it's been refreshing to track your progress uh your developments and all the things that you're involved with in competitive tennis and in charity events and just being a a world traveler going out and spending time on the tour
1: yeah absolutely i mean it's been You know there's something about this place i think that's special and i think the people that come here end up sticking here and there's something special about the environment that i was first drawn to you mentioned the player i was working with at the time who was going through a very difficult time in in her life and her career with a potentially career-ending injury i wanted to try to find an environment that that suited her that was safe that would sort of facilitate her progress and where she would be inspired to do things that were really, really difficult. And, you know, I found a kindred spirit and people that were here like yourself who were like me and always trying to find better ways to, you know, to work with athletes, better ways to help these people chase down their dreams, you know, and that's, I think, one of the things that really stuck with me. And then, you know, it motivated me to kind of go on my own journey as well.
0: Excellent. Well, obviously, you've been a competitive tennis player for a good chunk of your life. So if you would share your Entry into into tennis and and how you selected that sport and some early experiences that put you on the trajectory that you're on now.
1: You know I played all kinds of sports. I played soccer. I played basketball. I played whatever my friends played when I was a kid. And around the time I became interested in tennis, there was this this kid with long hair and the jean shorts, you know, named Andre Agassi, who was breaking through on the tour. And I saw him on TV a couple times, and you know I thought that looks pretty cool what he's doing i like the way that he's you know the charisma and and the way he was playing he was playing you know in sort of a a style that i recognize now that was sort of the future of the game and around that same time a couple friends of mine were speaking with their parents and around we we all kind of had this idea that we wanted to try to take tennis lessons together one summer we would do it once a week my brother and i and then three of my friends from my class at school and it was in del cerro which which you know well del cerro swim and tennis club and my brother and I really liked it and we kept doing it after the six or eight weeks was up and years later it's taken me on this incredible journey that I never could have predicted and, and I'm so grateful for it.
0: So when you and your buddies got in there and, and little hoppers running around taking tennis lessons, you were still doing your other sports, team mm-hmm. sports, individual sports as well.
1: Yeah, tennis was something that I did maybe once a week during that summer and then it maybe became twice a week gradually, but I still played... That was I was ten years old when we started, and I still ended up playing. You know, for sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, I played football for the school. I played basketball for the school. I played, you know, a couple of years of Little League in there. And my freshman year of high school was the last year that I played another sport. I played soccer for my high school that freshman year of high school, and then it became really difficult to manage the tennis schedule because by this time I was playing every day and competing year round. It became very difficult to manage the tennis schedule. With the, you know, with the soccer schedule and to be you know, a fully committed teammate when, you know, with soccer when I needed to be, I wasn't playing club soccer at all anymore, just played for the high school. You know, my dad didn't think I was gonna make the team. That was really the only reason he let me try out. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, and so I played, you know, I, I'm a big believer in playing all the sports. So I'm not a
0: well-rounded tennis player. I haven't picked up a racket. I worked with some tennis players over the years. And at, at tournaments and training, they would just expose me and rip balls off my body and, and get the racket knocked out of my hands. So my question to you is, when did you really get attached to tennis? Did you pick it up quickly, early? Was it something that appeared to be a a long journey to really master it or in anything that you can remember
1: about when you were just immersed in the sport initially you know i think that those lessons with my friends they were so fun and there was nothing there was no like ulterior motive we i wasn't playing it because my parents wanted me to be a tournament player or because they wanted me to go to college to play tennis they let me do it because i wanted to do it and i wanted to do it with my friends and i mean these lessons were like a tennis coach feeding us balls out of a hopper and you know (laughs) us seeing how many balls we could hit outside the court like because we thought we're you know we're hitting home runs and that's obviously not the point of the game but something about the game hooked me I I liked I liked being on my own Uh, I did like team sports for sure but I liked the challenge of being out there on my own I liked the chance to problem solve and I liked the I liked the the you know, I guess now we'd call it deep practice Mm -hmm. the the way that tennis is kind of a deep practice sport where you will work on the same skill over and over and over again. And I liked that, you know, that feeling of kind of going to work and trying to get better at it. I I really like that. And and that feeling of now that feeling of hitting that one ball, just right. It's, it it keeps me coming back now. And and I kind of chase the same thing with golf, like that chance to hit that one ball just right. And that's enough to get me coming back the next day.
0: You're Wasting no time at all, Mark, taking us down this rabbit hole. And you've already hit on a couple key points, which I find fascinating and super important when we're talking about exposure for kids. Fun factor was at a high level. You guys are rascals. You're just trying to drop balls over the fence and have fun. And it appears that the people providing the lessons were empowering you to explore and probe and do inventory, enjoy it as your foundational skills were coming in. And I also am a big believer that the curiosity, the critical thinking and the exploration of, of solving that and being in process as a young person is super duper valuable. So on that note, what are your thoughts for kids or parents or people that might be out there listening about participation in multiple sports versus only doing one and starting that from the jump
1: i think it's critical to play or at least to be exposed to different sports because the earlier you specialize the more that you're going to develop you know a body or even a mind that's sort of molded into one thing And, and ultimately when we talk about creating i mean because i've worked at this high end in sports for so long when we talk about how are athletes going to potentially be successful as adults, we want to work with people that don't have any limitations. And so that means people that are well rounded athletes, that means people's, you know, who have the the mental capacity to solve problems. And so it means, you know, being exposed to soccer, because of the footwork being exposed to basketball, because you need to be able to make a, you know, a layup right handed and left handed, so you can develop both sides of your body. And then eventually, I think kids, you know, decide what sport they like, but just the idea about being exposed to different things, being sort of having this ability to maybe choose which path they want to go to. And and I think this idea, you know, when we were when I was just talking about my first exposure to tennis, it it wasn't some, you know, amazing world renowned coach that my parents sought out, it was the, the guy down the street, who had the ability to keep me coming back and to make sure that I had fun in that one hour when You know, we're probably picking up balls for 20 minutes, but I was there with my buddies. It was great. And for me, that was enough of a team feeling that, you know, it kept me coming back. But I think kids a lot of times can be isolated too early. They can be by themselves too long when they're not uh, maybe emotionally able to handle that. There may be, you know, kids sort of mature at different rates and Mm -hmm. and they can handle different things. Some kids can't handle competition. I, I loved competition. And even though, you know, I remember my first tournament, like I got killed I just zero success but I had so much fun being out there in the process of competing my mom was worried I never want to do it again and I told her mom I can't wait for the next one and you know first maybe some other child like they might not be able to emotionally handle that but for whatever reason I could handle it and I I sought the challenge of trying it again
0: for all you coaches out there or all you parents out there uh, a really great point was was referenced there mark just a moment ago and that was The job of both the parents, in my opinion, it's not the truth, and the coaches initially is exactly that, to create an environment where the kids are choosing to come back. And if they want to do it, they're part of the process. There's going to be some good things that come out of that, regardless of the level they get to. They're fulfilled. They're enjoying it. And eventually, they're going to create their own end result from that. So... Let's let's pick you back up now. So your team sports are in the rearview mirror. You're playing tennis. You're in high school. And how was that for you?
1: I, I was fortunate to go to a high school where there were a bunch of good tennis players. We had probably you know nine or ten guys from my high school that played like high level Division One college wow. tennis. Yeah, so it was great. So we would just, you know, my freshman year, we'd walk across the street to the University of San Diego and we'd practice there. And my sophomore, junior, senior years, we would drive down the street to the Barnes Tennis Center, which is a big facility in Point Loma that had just been built. And we would practice there. And, And there wouldn't be like a high burden on my parents, like because there was always someone older who could drive. And, you know, we'd one of our guys from school would just ride over together. So it was easy. My parents would pick us up at, you know, whenever they got off work. So we'd practice a couple hours, have a snack or shoot hoops, whatever, kill time, and then we were ready to go. And it was something that it was, I guess my parents encouraged me to be very self-directed. So like when I was younger, they would, you know, have an index card with all the phone numbers of all the kids that were my age that played tennis, that played tournaments that I was friends with. And it would be my responsibility on a Saturday or a Sunday to call and set up my practices for the rest of the week. And there'd be one Your day, responsibility. my responsibility, like there'd be that. one day that was a lesson where they would take me to like my coach, and I would have an hour private with the coach and my brother would have an hour. Uh, But the four or five other days, I would have practice matches, and I would be responsible for setting those up. Maybe one day a week, there'd be like a drill session with another, you know, coach or whatever that we would go to. But yeah, the majority of time, it was me setting up my own practices. And it was like that in high school as well. Um, And and, yeah, it was, uh, it was a blast. And I'd see my buddies at the tournaments on the weekends. And I guess I was at a level where I knew all the kids who were competing and it was as close to tennis, as close as tennis could be to a team sport for me.
0: Yes. With with that being said, it appears to be a a healthy environment, a competitive environment, certainly a talent laden, talent laden program. When did you first start to have aspirations or belief that you could continue playing tennis beyond high school?
1: Probably in high school, I guess until that point it was always, what's the next thing. It was just, it was just playing, playing because I love to play and play and because I love to compete. And my parents, again, like they never said I had to play in college or even said I had to play in high school or had to play in the 18 and unders. They just provided me with the opportunity to continue playing if I sought it. And there were times when my younger brother maybe didn't want to compete. And so they wouldn't put him in the tournaments. He, played for about a week at Santa Clara in college. And then he decided he was done and there was no issue. Um, Yeah, my parents, they were unbelievable because they pushed me when I wanted to be pushed. I feel like my, especially my dad had a good sense of that. They had the ability to figure out, you know, if I said I wanted to do one thing, they were gonna provide me with the opportunity, but they were also gonna make sure I held up my end of the bargain, whatever that was like, you know, competing really hard, like having intensity. That was something that came up a lot. Like you know, if my intensity wasn't there, like my dad was, you know, <laughs> all over me. And I-, I think they did it in a really healthy way. And it was it was great in that sense. I was really lucky because I-, I know a lot of families are not that way.
0: Did they play tennis, your folks?
1: No, but they picked it up when my brother and I picked it up. So it was something we could do as a family as when a family. We, yeah. When we were really, when my brother and I were really green, not
0: enough to coach you enough to keep nudging you along so you could find your way.
1: Yeah. And enough where they could understand what the coach was saying in practice and reinforce it. My dad could reinforce it. My dad could go out there, feed us balls and mm-hmm. and drill us. And <laughs> to this day, he'll be like, Hey, yeah, I was at the U S you know, they came to the U S open when I was there last month and my dad will be like, Oh yeah, I saw so-and-so practicing. And, you know, on her volleys, she wasn't moving her feet. And, well, you know, he'll tell me these little technical things that he saw that were wrong. And it's just, it cracks me up.
0: (laughs) That's, that's wonderful. So, so your high school years and your development in tennis sounds to be positive, engaging, stimulating. You didn't have automatic early success. You got your ass handed to you by some of the more talented players the older players and then during your high school evolution you started to see that there was a possibility for you to continue at a higher level
1: yeah i I probably eventually became one of the better guys in san diego like southern california super strong super strong Uh, so you know the tournaments were not easy by any stretch but i started winning more matches having more success and i started to I was exposed, I guess, to the players at the University of San Diego, the players at San Diego State. I started to see what the level was like and that it was something I wanted to be a part of. And as this sort of development was taking place, my dad took more of an interest too in helping find those good coaches, find those coaches who could help me continue developing my game and like with more of a, an eye on the future. And, and that mm-hmm. I thought was really, it was really helpful. We weren't like, I wasn't jumping around ever really, but I would be with a coach for maybe a couple of years okay, maybe that coach has taken me as far as that coach could. My game is missing whatever it is, whatever part. This coach does that really well. Let's try this coach out. And then, you know, I'd stay with him for another, you know, year or two, whatever it is. But, um, and, and I, you know, I look back at the coaches I worked with and you know, I wouldn't change anything. I was really happy with all of them.
0: Wow. Well, that's, that's very interesting. And if you would share for the listeners the the difference between your path and some very common outlets for young people to develop it's not a natural progression to be in a high school program like you were stay at home be around the family unit have your development with team sports and then venture off there's plenty of young players that are homeschooled on the road traveling with their teams away from their families and not having that full experience as a platform and a launch point.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. Like tennis can be a really, or you know, individual sports in general, or I mean, to be honest, any sport that you wanna play at a really high level, it can be very lonely, it can be very isolating. And especially if this happens very young, it's just a really irregular upbringing. And I think it, it does a poor job developing the human being inside, and that person ends up being ill-equipped emotionally to handle how difficult it is to get to such a high level in any of these sports and for you know for tennis we see this trend of homeschool super early which i am a very uh, strong advocate against i don't mm-hmm. i don't believe in that i think there's so much social development that takes place in school with people that you know aren't emotionally stunted from their sports or aren't you know, it gives you this idea that there's more to life than whatever club sport or whatever tournament is coming up next. So I think there's a huge benefit for being in a regular school. I think there's a huge thing to be said for kids that stay with their coaches for decent periods of time. I I think there's this epidemic of, of hopping from coach to coach in search of these immediate results. And by immediate results, like nobody cares what happens when you're 14 or 15. Like, you know, maybe it'll help for college recruiting, but You know, probably not. I think people are concerned about if I'm a college coach and I was, I worked at Princeton, I want to know how you're going to play when you're 20 years old, you know, how you play at 14 and a half or 15. That is nice, but I, you know, I end up projecting how you're going to be as a more mature athlete. And and so that part is kind of irrelevant. I'm more interested in, in how your development is going as an athlete and as a person. So, you know, the best results that I've seen come out of kids that have stable environments with their coaches with their teams and I think there's you know I think it says a lot about a a person or a family when you see someone who has a track record of having bounced around so much
0: yes Uh, we should also note that that you're one of the most decorated uh, United States Tennis Association uh, coaches and in the last few years have uh, developed and and put yourself in a in a special position to uh, to grow, to have exposure. You're doing television now. And so do you think that the background that you were able to experience also gave you a, a platform and a foundation to transition to the coaching when you did to have the understanding uh, of the development and how important it was to have the pillars that you enjoyed in your entry?
1: Yeah, I think so, especially because my, my development was was slower probably as a result. I I think there's certain ways to maybe get from point A to point B quicker than the way I took, or maybe the ways to ensure more early success. But because I think I got to see it from the angle that I got to see it, I think it's helped me. And and to be honest, because of going to regular school, being around regular kids, uh, it's helped me kind of have an emotional intelligence and emotional understanding of, of what it takes just to deal with people. And then what it takes to deal with, you know, with athletes who are on the sort of high pressure end of the spectrum, because I guess having had a foot in both worlds, it just helps me kind of understand in that sense.
0: Yes. Okay. So you're back in high school. Your dad is providing you with great opportunities to work with different coaches. Your game's evolving. You're succeeding in, let's say, the two best states in the country for competitive tennis are Florida and California. And of all the amazing academic institutions that you could choose to go to in California,
1: you decided to go across the country to Boston College because? I wanted to be on a coast. I don't know why, but I had this I had this idea. I mean, I guess I'm drawn to the ocean, kind of like, like you as well. I want to be on a coast. I want to be near water. And I, I visited some schools. I really liked BC. Again, probably similar to my high school years and even before that. I didn't really I wasn't drawn to like I want to win a national championship or I want to play for this big program I want to be at a school that I liked and then the tennis was a little bit secondary like looking back on it if I were to make decisions with a tennis first point of view like I probably wouldn't have ended up there but I wouldn't trade it for anything because I loved BC I loved my friends I loved my time there like the guys on my team I'm still cool with all of them and like, did I end up being not as good as a player as I could have been? Like, yeah, probably. But is that that important now? Like, not really. So I, I, again, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So at
0: Boston College, what are some, some highlights from your experience there, from your tennis career, and some of the most challenging things that you encountered there?
1: At at BC, I had to be very self-directed. Again, it was an example, I guess, with, you know, dealing with the weather, dealing with indoor tennis, like our coach Worked another job, like our coach was a director at a club, also, so he had some club hours. So a lot of times in the mornings, if I wanted to practice, it was on me to call the assistant to set something up or to call another guy on my team and Back get out what there.
0: Your parents taught you how to do. Yeah, you yeah. I was, I was very comfortable
1: doing it, and yeah. you know, very comfortable picking up a phone, which a lot of kids now like can't do it. They need, can't do you know, it. the parents calling or texting each other so that matches for the kids, like it's ridiculous. But um, yeah, I, I mean, BC was it, it was a really fun time. I remember most the times on the road. And I'm sure you hear that from of athletes. Like if you could pick out some matches or like, I remember matches. I remember my last match, my senior year, my last home match, my mom flew out for it. Uh, I came, you know, I was down a set and maybe two breaks. I came back and won in one and three sets. Like it was a nice win, but it's not what I think about now. When I think about my experience, I think about the first time we slid on black ice, like in the van with like one of my buddies from San Diego sitting right next to me. And yeah, he was a year older than me. And that was one of the reasons I went there. And a guy who grew up from San Diego um, was a freshman at BC when I was a senior. Then he ended up being a year ahead of me. It was like this big adventure we were on in the Northeast, like these two guys from San Diego who, you know, are like beach guys. And we there and, you know, snowstorms, every snowstorm, we were calling like this blizzard, you know? And uh, <laughs> I just, I'm smiling as I think about those times because I, I, don't, I don't know if there's any times with being on court competing that I think about the same way. Maybe because my experience was a little bit different and, you know, we weren't a super successful program. Um, but I took a lot of pride and I guess getting back to the tennis, I took a lot of pride when we played outdoors, as you know, we played a lot indoors, but when we played outdoors, especially like going down to play at the university of Miami or these extreme conditions, I took pride in the fact that I could handle the heat. You could handle I wasn't going to lose to any of these guys from the Northeast, any of That's these soft right. dudes who played indoors. I was going to go to the mat and do whatever it took to win. And I, uh, <laughs> I remember like matches like that, that, um, sort of turned on this like this thing inside of me where I was going to I was going to do whatever it took and um I remember some tough moments as well like trips to University of Hawaii where I had a couple like bad losses in in Honolulu but you know all in all like the experiences for me are the times with my friends really yeah
0: it's a great place to have a bad loss in Hawaii <laughs> oh, anytime man. you can get to Hawaii embarrassing for sure so through your development in, in college, what were some of the the great achievements that you're you're proudest of individually that you accomplished in tennis, while you when you're still a player?
1: You know, at at BC, I think I was really I was proud of being a contributor to the team. Like my freshman year, I was like the first freshman to win more than twenty matches in a season. I, I was really proud of that. Like I was. I, I won wherever they put me. Like if, you know, at the beginning of the year, they started me off at the bottom of the lineup and I worked my way higher and higher and I and I kept winning. And I was really proud of that. I thought, to be honest, I thought that I worked harder than the rest of the guys, or at least most of the guys. And I thought that I deserve is a strong word to use now, but I thought that I did more. So I thought that I was prepared to, you know, to have that success. My sophomore year, I was injured a lot. It was a really tough year for me. It was a challenging year in a lot of ways. and. I was, I was thinking about transferring after my sophomore year, just because I wasn't happy with how I was playing. Uh, I wasn't happy with the coach and <laughs> as things happened, that coach took a different job. I had a new coach for my junior and senior years and it was something that, uh, it sort of gave me this new inspiration. I actually had a conversation with my coach at home and he gave me these, these words that essentially changed my tennis experience. And he told me that he said, Mark, tennis is your thing and don't let anyone else affect how you experience this thing that you care so much about. When you're inside those fences, it's your thing. And I was like, gosh, like that's just, for whatever reason, it spoke to me and it changed my relationship with tennis. It changed my relationship with, with college tennis. And it became something that I could, could point to and grab onto like whenever things got, got challenging again. And it went, it went from, I went from this guy who, was ready to leave and I was out mentally, I was not coming back and it became this thing where I was going to enjoy my time out there no matter what, no matter who was around. And it really, you know, Jim Alt, who he's actually, he's going through a tough time right now. But, but I, I cherished that time that he took to, you know, to open up this little window into his relationship with the game and share it with me. And it, it forever changed my relationship with the game, I think.
0: Great, great words of wisdom when you needed it the most and the the fun the fun was starting to leave the space and that's interesting for you to internalize and just keep ownership of it and not be comparing your insides to other people's outsides and and what's happening so that's that's an inspiring point in your in your tennis career for sure so What were the what were the next steps and when was the conclusion of your of your playing career and when did you transition into coaching?
1: Yeah, my junior and senior years I had pretty average years. My senior year I think I wanna say was pretty good. We had some good young guys that came in, some freshmen that came in that were really highly motivated and sort of remotivated me. And after a sophomore year that was just the opposite of fun, these years were, were really a blast for me and we had a pretty good team my senior year, we were you know, there were these, these top couple teams in our conference, like Miami, Notre Dame. Notre Dame was a top 10 team my senior mm-hmm. year. We were kind of in the tier right below them. So we were sort of pushing those guys, but not quite there. And I, I guess what makes me, you know, really proud in a way, too, is that the team was in a lot better place once I left than when I got there. And. I decided to, I wanted to play for a year after I wanted to travel and play some of these, you know, satellite or futures tournaments, which is the very bottom level of professional tennis. And my dad enabled me to do that. He helped me out and I, I did that for about a year. I had <laughs> a minimal, minimal, minimal success. And I realized the writing was on the wall I wasn't going to be a tennis player, but at that point I was, I was okay with it. And I had already put applications into law school. And so a year later, I was off to the University of San Diego Law School. And then, was, I was done as a player. Okay. Um, law school, I did my first year. I did my whole one L year. I, I like I like school. I'm someone who's pretty academic, and in the back of my mind, I started to have this feeling of unfinished business with tennis or this unfinished relationship. I was playing some money tournaments on the weekends, you know, just pick up a little extra cash in San Diego. And I was being pretty successful, obviously, cause I was, had been playing at a decent level before that. So I was making some money, but I was still, I was, you know, full in school, but I started to have this nagging feeling that, that school wasn't it. And that I had this unfinished business with the game. Um, over the summer, after my first year, I told my parents, I wasn't sure that I wanted to go back to school. And my dad said, <laughs> um, he said, okay but you better have a plan. So I took a couple of kids to Europe to play some tournaments just to make some money during the summer, fly back to Boston. And I'm like, Oh shoot, I'm going back to San Diego. I need to, I need to have a plan. Otherwise my dad's gonna make me go back to school. And so I'm like, what's the easiest thing I can do? I'll look at the NCAA website, see if there's any college coaching opportunities.
0: When you were in Europe on that trip, did you coach the kids or were you more of a chaperone or you did? You yeah, did chaper- chaperone and coach. Okay. I mean, it okay. was,
1: it was not very hard work. Like these are kids who weren't very good, like had a lot of money and parents wanted to send them to play some tournaments. So uh, it was, you know, it was like a month in Europe, it was a nice trip, but I came back to Boston I'm at my buddy's apartment and I'm thinking like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like I need to figure out something. I saw there was an opening for an assistant coach at Princeton, assistant tennis coach, Princeton University. I was like, whoa, Princeton, like that would like get my dad off my back for a couple of weeks. And, Cause Princeton's a school that he had wanted me to go to. I didn't end up going there but I'm like, oh man, this is coming around again. Princeton, cool, I'll just, I'll put an email in this way, I'll tell my dad I have a couple irons in the fire and just sure. buy myself some time to figure out what I wanna do. Long story short, I threw my email in application, I get a response back, we start conversing. I'm just like, I'm just gonna play this out so I can buy my time, You know, buy my some time and tell my dad I'm working on something. We end up talking, we ended up having a good connection with this coach. She just took the job. She's looking for an assistant. She wants someone young. She wants a guy who can sort of push the players. And she basically was like, I, I need to make a decision because otherwise I need to talk to some other candidates. And I ended up like, you I didn't really
0: plan on getting the job yet. You're headed in that direction. And she knows you have really no coaching experience. Yeah. And, your... you
1: know, she had asked me what I think about the game. What's my philosophy with tennis? And I started talked talked about, talked through a few things. But I had no intention of, I I wouldn't even know if I wanted to be a coach. I just knew that tennis coaching was something easy that I could, you know, maybe get myself in the conversation with. And after a couple of conversations, I, you know, I was in, I remember being in in a gym in San Diego with my trainer at the time. And and I just told him, and we know the scenario I was in. And he said, what's the worst thing that could happen? You don't like the job, you come back, like big deal. And I said, you know what, you're right. And I called her, I said, I'm taking the job. And I told my dad I was taking the job. The next day, I went to University of San Diego to get the NCAA rule book to take the recruiting test. And then two days later, I was on a flight to go recruit for Princeton. Amazing.
0: <laughs> so there you have it. It is possible to get a job even when you're not trying to get it. And you didn't go overboard or embellish on any of your achievements to present to the coach. And there you go. You're off to New Jersey.
1: Yeah, it was just... I was, I was me. I talked about how I felt about the tennis. I talked about what I felt or what I had learned by being coached all those years, the ways that I thought were most effective for myself and maybe with other people. And that was, that was enough. Like it was, it was just me. Were you excited, nervous, a little bit of both? Yeah, both. And and I look back and I'm, (laughs) I'm like, wow, like how underprepared were you to be in charge of these student athletes? But it was such a it was such an unbelievable opportunity to have this thing that was ours and by ours, like myself and and the head coach, Kathy, who's a close friend. Now we had this, this trust that was placed in us by the athletic director, by Gary Walters. And it was just, it was so cool to be handed the keys and saying, Hey, this thing is yours. Like run with it. I
0: could say this now because I've got some skins on the wall, Mark, and I would have said the same thing that you just said that you're totally unprepared for this job. And my response to that is incorrect. You've been preparing your entire life for that job. You just didn't know it. From the time you're organizing your practices, you're a team sport athlete. You're figuring out things. You're in charge of your destiny. You're accountable to yourself. And it sounds as if you were a a solid teammate and a coachable person. The fact that you had many good, bad, and in-between coaches that gave you different points of view and experiences that you could draw from all of those different exposures to put together in your mind's eye, at least, these are some qualities that a good coach needs to represent to the athletes. So now you're back at Princeton. You're a brand-new coach. And then what happens?
1: I was trying to figure out who I was as a coach. I think that's one of the things I think about when I look back at some of the early practices that we had and some of the early things I said and you know, cycling through these like cliches of what you think a coach is or what you think a coach maybe isn't. I know there were certainly, like I said earlier, there were certain ways that I knew I did not want to coach. There were certain things I did not want to do. And I also knew that that the coaches I liked were coaches I knew cared and cared a lot. And then other than that, it was trying to get the right people, you know, college sports, it's about recruiting, getting people that are going to buy into your values and and who you are as a coach who you are as a program. So, you know, uh, one of the biggest challenges was that first year and the people that were already there from the previous, uh, you know, administration, the previous coaching team was getting them to understand where we were coming from. And maybe it's a different level of competitiveness. The head coach, Kathy, she had played at Duke. She was a top 10 singles player. She came from a winning program. I was coming, you know, maybe out of the professional tennis world with with a winning mindset that, that we both wanted to work and we both wanted to, we wanted to win the Ivy league. And these kids were there, you know, we thought to have a good time and to be social and to be in their eating clubs and whatever it is. And we were, you know, we were shaking up their world a little bit. I think looking back, Maybe we didn't have the right amount of empathy for the change that they were going into, Sure, but you know, they were, they were being forced to step their game up and they were, they were being threatened and, you know, no doubt.
0: And how did that, how did that work out for everybody?
1: It was very volatile and eventually year by year, I was there for three years. Year by year, it got better. Year by year, we got more kids who wanted to be a part of what we were talking about. And, they, you know, and for sure there were kids from that original group, the from the previous coach, who you know, who bought in? And one of them I just saw at the U.S. Open. I saw her with her with her family, and it w- it was unbelievable to see her because, you know, she's <laughs> just such a special person. And, and she was telling me that she sees like the dumb videos I put on Instagram and does the drills with her kids. Uh, but just to see, you know, to see these people as adults, I'm sure you know I haven't had that experience too much because the people I worked with were either really young and they're only barely now becoming adults. But to see someone like that who was you know a young adult now as a full adult it it was just it it was incredible it was an incredible feeling
0: sure so transitioning from princeton what was the next step for you in your coaching career
1: yeah after princeton i had this feeling that i wanted to try to coach at the next level i wasn't sure how to do it so after princeton i thought i was going to get into the individual coaching side of things so i left i came back to san Diego. And I started to get in contact with people and let them know that, you know, I was back in the area. I was in the mix, a family hired me in Laguna beach to work with their daughter. I had recruited her to go to Princeton. She ended up going to USC, but her family, they, they took a liking to me because of how interested I was in their daughter as a player, how, I guess, how I thought her game might end up being. And so they're like, okay, yo, you're back. Like, yeah, we want you to work with our daughter. So I ended up working with her for a summer prior to going to USC her summer after her senior year. Yes. I had all this time and I really liked it. Like, cause we could work out two hours in the morning, we could grab lunch, get two hours in the afternoon. In, and I liked having this sort of unlimited canvas to work with sure. as opposed to, you know, NCAA, you have 20 hours a week. Limits. Yeah. Limits. And, and I really liked it. So that, you know, led to another thing where I started coaching this female player who is ranked around 500 in the world, like a, challenger kind of level player, but it was my first opportunity. So I took it and it was my first time traveling the world as a coach and figuring out just how to deal with a player and tournament preparation and tournament mode, post tournament and all that getting to the next event planning a schedule all that so that was my first real uh, sort of entree into that. While I was on the road with her. There was this new website called Facebook that had just come out. And they were they were only now starting to let people with non-college email addresses and like uh, sign up because before that it had been only for universities. So I was in like I don't know Toronto or Venezuela or somewhere and I I was bored and so I'm like oh I'll sign up for Facebook signed up for Facebook, friended some people that were already in my email address because it somehow automatically downloads, and I got a message maybe 20 minutes later from this guy saying hey I've been trying to get your contact information we're starting a new thing at the USTA center in Carson. Yes. Would you be interested? And a month later, like I'm working for the USTA in Carson, California because I signed up for Facebook.
0: So it was that quick. And then what was the environment like over there? And how is that a a platform and another launch point to accelerate your development?
1: Yeah. So the USTA United States Tennis Association, they have two national training centers, one in Florida, one here in LA and Carson, and they were starting a new program, they wanted to work with young kids from a young age and sort of develop them towards the professional path. And I started as a part time coach, I eventually became a national coach. And it was this environment that for someone like me for a tennis junkie, for someone like me, who's so driven, it was, it was an incredible learning environment. It's like taking you know, a master's or PhD level courses in tennis. And I was around some of the most experienced coaches in the world. The, the head of coaching, Jose Higueras, coached Michael Chang to his French yes. Open title, Jim Courier. Just, you know, his his last job before coming to the USTA was coaching Federer. So, you know, we had a guy like this there. There were, you know, the other national coaches at the time were these guys with extensive playing records at the pro tour level, uh, extensive coaching records at the pro level. And I was one of the youngest guys there. And, It was this, you know, Tom Gullickson was there, former Davis cup captain and former pro tour player, unbelievable player. So I was around these people on a daily basis where I was being pushed outside my limits. I was, everything I did on court, someone would ask me why, and to explain what the purpose of, you know, this drill was, or this technique, what's the objective. And I had to have a reason for it. You know, every night we would email our practice plans to the rest of the organization. So this happens every evening. So I get everyone else's practice plans. They get my practice plans. And when you send yours out, you get reply all after reply all saying, why are you doing this? What's the purpose for this sequencing? Why are you not doing X, Y, or Z? And it really forced you to understand what you're doing as a coach. Talk
0: about standing naked in front of the whole village. And you've got icons and legendary coaches there analyzing your every step. So I, I get it. When you, you say your learning curve was accelerated and
1: the pressure, uh, the pressure you felt as a coach too, was tremendous, especially as a young coach. I mean, some of the other coaches whose, you know, results spoke for themselves. Maybe felt differently, but me as one of the young guys there, you know, if one of those coaches walked by my court and I was feeding balls, like I would tighten up mm-hmm. and, and like looking back now, like they're probably watching the player. They're not watching me. They're watching the young prospect, but, you know, if I fed a drill wrong, like one of those coaches would walk on the court, take the racket out of my hand and show me how to do it right. Wow. Because there's such a specific sort of type of of racket feeding that they would want. And it just, and and things like that pushed me to be so detail oriented and to be so focused on what I was trying to do that I I just, you know, makes me think back to those Princeton days. And like, like I had no idea what I was doing. And now I was in this environment where I had to know and I was learning. And we, you know, we would talk, We'd have meetings periodically and talk about different coaching techniques, different, you know, different theoretical things in tennis, why are we doing this and not that what do we want these players to look like? And and what are we going to do at these different stages of development, understanding, you know, the psychology, understanding, you know, different uh, body types, all the all these things that I had never even thought of, were now, you know, being, being pushed on me, and, and I was being just immersed in this incredible environment to learn.
0: Complete contrast of your environment back in Princeton.
1: Yeah, where it, like I said, we were just handed the keys and saying, yeah. good luck. You know, where I kind of sought out that environment, sort of maybe subconsciously, but being in the USTA, like, put me in that environment. Yes. And then post-USTA, you know, I, find, I found myself working to create this environment again, you know, in a, maybe a more, um, you know, n- not an official way, a very, like, unofficial way, but trying to, again, surround myself by older coaches whose opinions i value who like to talk tennis and who you know value their relationship with me as well
0: so do you have a few mentors out in the world that you stay in contact with and communicate about your players and your different strategical concepts that you're coming up with
1: yeah always always i i think i mean we have to keep learning and i have to keep learning because i want to i want to facilitate my players development. And I want to try to find any competitive advantage that I can have to help my players. And I want to be, you know, selfishly, I want to be the best coach I can be. So if that means, you know, talking to these different coaches who I think are great coaches, a couple of them, I certainly do. If that means reaching out to former tour players who in their own right feel kind of underutilized, that they're this great resource that no one's talking to, like, I'm the one talking to them. You know, I've done that with a bunch of former players. Who always complain that like no one talks to them. Like I talk to them and I talk to them and I ask them what they think about the player that I'm working with, what they think about the game, what they think about that match that they called for ESPN. And yeah, I try to simulate that environment. And then conversely, there's a couple of young coaches who I try to pay it forward with and talk to them about tennis talk to them about where they're at in their careers and then talk you to them you beat
0: me you beat me to the punch so you're already <laughs> gathering mentees and providing that channel so that it's a transparent exchange and all of the things that you're learning from hundreds of years of of coaching experience and playing experience is, is available to them perhaps at an age uh, earlier than yours even
1: yeah people did it for me and i think you know in all sports you know what where do good athletes come from they come from being around good more good coaches and in tennis we have this dearth of i think of quality coaches and the only way to make coaches better are for coaches to coach them and to sort of explain pass along our knowledge i mean i think probably in the south bay you see it in volleyball there are so many great accomplished like volleyball players who stay in the game at some level and who pass Their knowledge on to the next generation like I think tennis is is pretty bad at that and and in tennis we need those people who've had these experiences on the biggest stages to keep passing their experiences down not only to players but to coaches as well
0: I agree with you and am of the opinion that coaches need coaching so do you think that the reason why it's not more present in tennis is because of what people think others will think or the egos or they just don't know how to
1: engage or open that up? I think egos, um, a lot of people get sensitive when when they are offered feedback. I think people get hurt by it or maybe it means this thing like, oh, they're not a good coach when like, no, but there's a way maybe to do it better or there's a way for you to improve or you're missing something. People, I think, sometimes might take it personally, which, you know, which is fine. I think there is, kind of an element of laziness and I think there's an element of I, I hesitate to say taking advantage but a lot of times like well-intentioned parents they they don't see it for what it is like one of my buddies would always say why do these parents like go to that coach because it's like going to a guy who keeps giving you a bad haircut and you keep going back yeah it, but but it's lot of times people don't know the difference um so there's some luck towards uh maybe finding nice parents finding a good coach but uh you know I, I think if there are more ways i think just to facilitate that that dialogue between coaches and, and between just people in the greater sports community i think it would go a long way I,
0: yeah I, I agree with you it's a super healthy thing to just create an open channel and, and a freedom of self-expression there so when you began working over at the usta in carson which is nearby what were the youngest ages of the kids that you were exposed to there
1: we had kids that were like eight nine they would come after school like the you know eight like a eight to 12 program eight years old to 12 years old and during the day there'd be pros and a few kids who were homeschooled over the time i was five years in carson over the time there that balance began to shift they started to go away from the after school program and and the really young kids and have like a greater volume of kids maybe 12 to 14 that were homeschooled which looking back i'm not a huge fan like some pro players came out of there, like yes. certainly, but I don't think enough to, to validate like what was done as far as like removing so many kids from school. That's right. But yeah, it was an incredible, it was an incredible opportunity for me as an incredible environment. Like I said, to continue learning from and to, you know, again, to like see kids who wanted to chase their dreams. Like these, these kids were, you know, it's an, it's an abnormal thing becoming a, 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 one of the best athletes in the world, a very abnormal. And so I think, A lot of things about the experience and the journey are abnormal, but these were kids who would look you dead in the eye at 11 years old and say, like, I want to be number one in the world, and I'm going to be number one in the world, which is very rare.
0: So the next chapter for you after you left the USTA is you you went out into the world and went on tour with pro players.
1: Yeah. So I, I wanted to, again, keep moving towards working at the highest level of the game. And I got an opportunity to coach a young Canadian player named Eugenie Bouchard, um, she was 18 years old. She had won Wimbledon Juniors the year before, and she was ranked 150 in the world. and And I took it, and we worked together for gosh, maybe six months. And she was around 80 in the world when we stopped, and that was her first time breaking to the top hundred. Sure. A year later, <laughs> she was number five in the world, and she worked with a short with a different coach at the time. But it was a good, you know, good experience for me working with like a such a highly talented prospect. Yes. Like that, and that. Segway to another thing where I got to work with a player named Allison Risk and she was, this time she was ranked inside the top 50 um, she got to a career high ranking, we moved, We worked only for a short period of time but she got to another career high ranking with me um, third round of Wimbledon, it was my first time on Wimbledon center court which was unbelievable, uh, I didn't think anything of it at the time and one of the coaches from the USTA called me the night before and he was like, you're on center court tomorrow, and I said like, yeah, he's like that's really special. And I, I hadn't thought anything of it. I had just been busy, like game planning for Sharapova. And he's like, no, that's really special. You need to you need to make sure you enjoy it. And she lost the next day. It was a good match. She had chances, like we had a good game plan and she was you know, in control for a decent part of the match and just kind of let it slip away. But um, it was just surreal, like being in the box and I look where the, the player's box is right next to the Royal box and I turn to my left and I see David Beckham, you know, looking sharp and as normal, cool. And uh, it, it was just, it was my, my first and only time actually having a player play inside, you know, the greatest cathedral our sport has to offer. Um, after Allison, I worked with uh, Shelby Rogers for five years, who you got to know uh, pretty well, who was spent a lot of time here when she had a major knee surgery and was rehabbing in, you know, in El Segundo. And then the most two, the last two years, uh, Stevie Johnson, who's a South Bay guy. And it's just been this incredible journey and seeing all these, you know, these places, like I said, like that have become these places that I have become very familiar with who, if you told me as a kid that I'd spend so much time in some of these cities, it would be, you know, I would think you were crazy. And and now just to have these experiences and to be around these people, it's been, it's been fun beyond what I could have imagined. Hard to believe when you were, when you were young, Mark,
0: without a doubt. And although anybody that spent time traveling on any world tour for any sport will tell you it's far from glorious. There's challenge, there's difficulties, there's unpredictable things that you encounter and you get to see some of the most marvelous places on the planet and it's a traveling roadshow of the top one percenters in the sport. So it's it's truly special. And at this moment, now, with everything that you mentioned you know behind you and under your belt and in your toolbox, what would you say that is most important to you as a coach? What are the pillars of Mark Lucero's coaching philosophy right now that that he's evolved for the next chapter
1: going forward? I would say that very little bit it has to do with actual coaching. For me, it's about my personal philosophy, and it's about the athletes understanding that and buying into it like I want to develop someone or I want to be around someone who has a high level of character and if the character is suspect I need to figure out how to develop more of that otherwise we're not going to we're not going to work like if you and I don't work as a player and coach it doesn't mean you're a bad player or I'm a bad coach it just means we have a philosophical sticking point that we can't get past so I need you to buy into what I'm selling so I need a high level of character from you and I need someone who's going to compete their butt off. Competing doesn't mean trying hard. It doesn't mean running after every ball. It means being mentally engaged. It means being a mental problem solver throughout the course of a match. Not doesn't mean going down with the ship. It means being someone who's going to try to figure out how to get out of the scenario that we're in. And yeah, it means running down every ball. And then the, the last thing is you're going to play the way that we agree you should be playing, the way that you're equipped to play. Are you going to choose to hit the shot that we want you to hit in that scenario? Or are you going to play it safe and, and do the, the other thing so that you don't lose, like if you make a shot or miss a shot that can change from day to day, right? Like if you miss a shot, it just means you got to practice more, but if you don't choose to hit that shot, that's a big problem. That means you're not playing the way that we agree that you need to play. That means taking risks. If your game involves that, and that means me understanding, like I said, what you're, how you're equipped to play, how your personality sort of is pushing you to play. And then you're yeah, having that meeting of the minds where we both we've communicated and we're, all, we're on the same page with that. And, and so if, so that's pretty much the only tennis specific thing. Yes. The other things I think are, are people level things. And if these aren't communicated, when we start working together, I'm going to be pissed because you don't understand because you're not doing what I think you should be doing. You're going to be pissed because you don't understand why I'm so mad. So we need to communicate and get these things out on the same page so that my expectations if you are understood and your expectations of me are understood
0: awesome do you still have the opportunities from time to time and enjoy working with kids with different events and and programs that you're involved with
1: yeah i I love to do it i mean i i like working with anybody who is interested in it and who will anybody who's willing to listen and who is willing to try hard i I'm, i'm all in you know i'll be on court with you however long you want to do it i there's a junior kid who I work with now, he's 14. I was, you know, I would hit with this guy, this 58 year old guy named Alan, who I met randomly. Um, Him and I would hit once a week, he wanted me to transform his game. And I'm like, you're 58, what are we gonna do here? But he like, I want to hit like a heavy ball. And I want to do this and that. And so the guy let me do whatever I want to his game. And he would come and work his butt off. And he would let me run him from corner to corner. And, and it was a blast. And, you know, the same thing, I had a a family, a high school player who came up and wanted me to they want they wanted her to have really good technique and so i helped her with her technique and she was never going to be a great player but it was so fun because her family was they were they were so appreciative of my time and they were you know going to help their daughter like same thing we did they were going to help their daughter have access to someone who could really help them and and she had a blast and she had fun playing for her high school team and so for me like those things like a lesson with her to me is as enjoyable as yes. it is being at
0: Wimbledon, it's the same to me. And Gratitude is a is an amazing value exchange, and uh, I, I can appreciate and relate to that. I'm a sucker for that, too. I seek it out. The more people enjoy, appreciate, respect, and, and understand the value of, of what you're putting out there, the, the easier it is to do the work. And the rapper doesn't matter, the, the frame, the shape, the age, uh, as long as there's an engagement, interest, and the stimulations there. That's fantastic. So... While you're out, you know, all over the world, airport to hotel to tennis event, what are some things that you fall back on and lean into for your your personal development to stay sharp, besides talking to the mentors that you've got and the mentees? And I know that you're an avid reader, and you're uh, you're definitely one of the people that fall into the category of a of a curious coach. What are some behind the scenes? mantras and and everyday rituals that that you practice that that you feel are really important to keeping you the man keeping you uh at the level that you're at for your family for
1: yourself and for your athletes yeah i like routines and i like sort of a bringing thing bring anything on the road that's a constant for me and so for me to be honest i start the day with the process of making my coffee and it's just for and it's a process for me i make the coffee i put my little you know my layered creamer in there i get the ghee out then i get the blender and i blend it i listen to a podcast while i do that and for me that's a way to start the day that it just it calms me and it sort of gets my mind ready to go if i like to do some sort of meditation in the morning too, some sort of um you know some sort of exercise to get my breathing right to get to clear my mind And, you know, from there I can tackle the day. And if it's a, you know, prior to the COVID, like I would try to do a workout class somewhere like in New York or Miami or one of these big cities, I'd always try to go to a soul cycle somewhere else. I try to go to a yoga class. Like it's been a little hit or miss since then because we've been in bubbles and all these things, but I like to do some sort of workout, but I find it important to do things for myself because if I don't do things for myself, I'm not in the right mind space to help anybody else. And, And I become, become more irritable on the road. I become more itching to go home. I become more tired if I'm not taking care of myself and doing a good job. And I've found that through trial and error in the past where I've been really short with players and I don't like that coach that I become. And I know that it's from not doing things. It's not doing my yoga in the room, whatever it is, it's from not doing that. And so I know first and foremost, I need to do those things to get my mind. right. What can you share with people
0: that are apprehensive, about treating themselves the way you do the way I like to think I do as an athlete even though you're a coach I see you training I listen to your your daily regimen you're preparing yourself as if someone said mark you're on the court you're up next you've got a match there's something engaging about that it keeps you sharp and and being in the stay ready framework uh, I feel is is a healthy place to be in.
1: Yeah, I just feel I feel like A, like we don't need to be heroes. I think we can be very consumed with trying to do so many things for other people while not paying attention to what's on our plate. And, And I think we need to pay attention to what's on our plate in order to be a better, you know, helper for everyone else or especially in coaching, it becomes so it can become so easy to just be so worried about everybody else that we don't take care of ourselves. Yes. You know, sooner or later you're either not happy you're pissed off or you get hurt because at some point as a coach, you need to jump in and, you know, demonstrate something, you know, some player didn't show up for practice. So in my case, I need to jump in and hit in. And if I let my body go, which I've, you know, I've certainly done before, like I'm walking away with a hamstring. I'm walking away with a calf. I'm getting another shot in my Achilles like I did last year. Mm -hmm. And and I don't want to do that again. And I I also, I just feel better. Even everything from work aside, when I'm home, when I, you know, if I want to go surf, whatever it is, I can't do that if I'm hurt and I I don't feel good. And when I eat well, exercise well, I just find myself a lot better, a lot better person. Yes.
0: What would you say? And this might be a challenging question for you, but that's one of the few things that I'm good at is asking tough questions. What would you consider yourself to be better than a lot of other coaches or perhaps even a superpower? What do you do well that a lot of your other contemporaries may not do so well.
1: I'll get to that question just now. I think one thing that I do well is I think I can detach from the result pretty easily if I'm doing those other things, mm-hmm. like if I'm doing the yoga, if I'm doing like the, the mental stuff, if I'm doing like the meditating, I can detach from the result that's about to happen. And that's when I feel like the best results will happen for myself and for my players. Because if I'm sitting there in the match and like my stomach's churning and I'm like, I hope we win, I hope we win. I, I never like that feeling as a coach. I never like that feeling before the match where God, we really have to win today. I want the feeling of, I know we're gonna win. I don't know when it's gonna be, but I like where the player's at. I like what he's doing, we're good. And if I go into the match that night, not caring, not caring, air quotes, not caring about the result, Check. it's going gonna, it's gonna to go well Yes. on some level. And, and again, that's not how I measure success. It's not by winning and losing. But if I'm worried about the result, that means I'm not in the space where I'm believing what I'm saying when we're talking about, it's not being about the results, it's about how you play. So that is one thing. What I think I can do better, to be honest, than a lot of coaches is I think I can suppress my ego. And if you ask me a question and I'll know the answer, I'm not going to make something up. I'm going to say, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And I think a lot of coaches, they have these egos and they can't, they can't be honest with the players in that way. And I actually had a player it to me a long time ago that the reason that she wanted to work with me, and she was a, a great prospect and someone that we're very close to this day, but she was a great prospect. And she chose to work with me over all these, you know, highly decorated coaches at the USTA at the time. And years later, I, I was asking her why. And she said, because because you said you didn't know it all and you were gonna to try to find out. And, and, to, and to this day, like with these, with these players I work with, you know, I'll go to great lengths to try to uncover these little things that might make a difference for them where, you know, I don't, I'm not this person who thinks I know it all. Amen.
0: There's, there's a lot of merit to that and I certainly can substantiate that approach by some of my greatest mentors and most successful teams had an open door to bring people in, to share, to collaborate, to allow their players in the team sports to know that we're gonna bring everything possible we can in to equip you so you can be the best possible person and improve your skill acquisition as possible versus treating the whole team environment as if it was the Pentagon and everything's a secret because I don't believe that Uh, one can grow as easily that way so that's that's super healthy and it's not a shocker that somebody could identify with the fact that that you cared and your values were were in line so your parents the next time you talk to them need to remind them that they did a great job in raising you because this far surpasses anybody getting out their notepad to wanna write down nuggets for how you can be a better tennis player. And the value that was shared today, I feel like a robber. I got so much more out of our conversation than you could have gotten. Uh, I appreciate your transparency, your honesty, your colorful storytelling. And it was an absolute pleasure to have you on board today. Mark Lucero, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Uh, Troll, thanks, man. That was, was a blast.